1: Okay.
3: The Large Nerdron Collider Podcast is a production of iHeartRadio.
4: Welcome to the Large Neutron Collider podcast, the podcast that's all about the geeky things happening in the world around us and how excited we are to talk about them. I'm Ariel Kasten, and with me, as always, is the awesome Jonathan Strickland. And before you say anything, Jonathan, I almost said, "and all the freaky things in the world happening around us," because it's been that kind of a day. How are you?
3: I'm a I'm 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 freaky. I'm I'm super freaking out. Is You're what I'm super- doing. Yeah I am. I am. You know, three's not a crowd for me, I say. Wait, no, I can't say that. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> but that's in the that's in the song. It's in the song. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. You know what? I'm going to get us back on track. You threw me off, Ariel. Uh but I got a question for you. Okay, Ariel. Here's your question. And this one's a nice innocent question so we can get this back on the family friendly track it's supposed to be (laughs) on. What is a book that you have read multiple times and why do you like to read it?
4: I would say that would be a Phantom Tollbooth. Yes, I know or the Phantom Tollbooth. I know it's a children's story, but I just love all of the wordplay in it. I think it's super clever, Um, but it's more uplifting than let's say, a series of unfortunate events, which also likes to play with grammar and words and, and children's intelligence, but it's on a darker level. So yeah, the, the Phantom Booth. it's one of my, one of my, like my favorites outside of like, you know, the Chronicles of Narnia, the Lord of the Rings. Um, it's the best standalone book that I read over and over again. That's great. It's a good answer. Yeah.
3: yeah. Yeah. What about you? Okay. I was wondering if you're going to get around to asking me,
4: well, I uh, thought about not, but then
3: <laughs> there's actually quite a few books that I like to read over and over again. Uh, some of them, some of them are are more lighthearted. Like The Hobbit is a book that I often refer to as being my favorite of all time, which is probably not not 100 percent accurate. It was certainly my favorite book as a kid. Um, and I still very much enjoy it. I just don't know that I have the same like it. You know how things change in your estimation over Mm -hmm. time. Not that they get worse or anything, but you just start to appreciate other stuff. But I would say probably Good Omens, the Terry Pratchett, Neil Gaiman novel. I came across that while uh, having, having already read some of Neil Gaiman's work and a little bit more of Terry Pratchett's work and someone described it to me. And this is a description that a lot of people use as Hitchhiker's Guide to the Apocalypse. And I was a big fan of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy And uh, I absolutely loved the humor and the satire and the very human story that's told in there. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, so that that's probably one of those. uh, It's also the book that I think I have purchased the most because I'm one of those people who would buy a copy, I would lend it out to someone saying, you got to read this, never get it back. And so I would (laughs) go out and buy another copy. I now have it digitally. (laughs)
4: With Good Omens, I don't know, this happens to me with most of Terry Pratchett's stuff. I pick up the book to read it, and I'll read like a chapter, and I'll put it down, and then like months later, I'll come back and read another chapter. And that's how I read Good Omens. Um, I do like the story, and I like the TV show, and I'm interested about the sequel, but yeah, it's it just for some reason... Terry Pratchett is tiny, tiny, small chunks for me. It'd probably okay. be easier to understand if I didn't do it that way.
3: Uh, um. Yeah. I like a lot of the Discworld novels. I will say that toward the the end of the Discworld novels, toward the end of Pratchett's life, unfortunately, um, I was feeling like they were starting to get a bit repetitive. And so I kind of fell off of them after a while. But the earlier mm-hmm. ones are some of my, again, there's so much humor and satire and it's all in this sort of fantasy world trappings. Uh, just very, very clever. A lot of fun. Uh, we will try to be very clever and will definitely be fun as we talk about some news stories for the top of the show.
4: Yes. And this first one is about a bunch of clever and fun people, specifically the animators who make the Pixar shorts, um, the Spark stories. So if you're not familiar with Spark stories, y- you know, all those little Pixar short stories. Uh, short films in front of like a big Pixar movie and how we all loved them. Well, I think it was during the pandemic, wasn't it, Jonathan? When they started releasing Spark stories.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I, I, it was one of those things that I didn't notice at first. It was when, when I logged into Disney plus one day, I saw that and I thought, huh, I, I guess this is like just a collection of all the shorts and no, it's, it's not just that it's, it's short, short, uh, pieces that have been created by Pixar, uh, employees that, Maybe none of them, like some of them had had never been screened really on a big screen Mm -hmm. to the general public. Like it had been seen inside Pixar, but that was about it. And um, I remember watching one and my my uh, uh, wife and I were watching it and we were shocked because there was a joke that was it wasn't dirty, but it was a little body. It was more body than what you would expect to see in a Pixar film, like especially, you know, like that. Disney-style Pixar film, and it took us by surprise. And that's when we said, "Oh, this is something a little different. This isn't just like the little amuse bouche before the main course of a Pixar movie." Uh, and they're very, they're very fun to watch. This documentary is following two filmmakers as they go through the process of developing, and writing, and animating their works. And so it's kind of talking about what that process is like, how personal it can be for storytellers, and that this is one of the ways that Pixar helps to develop their uh, future, you know, lead storytellers, the people who will pick up the baton and make the Pixar classics of the future.
4: Yeah, if you had asked me if I wanted a Pixar documentary, I probably would have told you no. And this is even after having like, looked into their company history at one point in time back when you and I were doing the brink but the trailer for the for the documentary looks absolutely uplifting and delightful and it's 1000% something I need in my life right now
3: agreed yeah it's got a very positive sort of feel to it like you feel like there's going to be there's going to be some conflict there's going to be some challenges and stuff that people have to overcome because You know, maybe you maybe you come up with an idea and then you realize later that the idea you had is not something that's working out or whatever, but that ultimately it does have this kind of optimistic and creative spirit to it. Um, Have you watched any of the Sparks shorts?
4: I've watched a couple of them. The Little Boy Who Flew. Um, I don't remember the name of it.
3: Oh, I haven't seen that one. I saw the ball of yarn one. Did you see that one?
4: I did not see that one. The
3: ball of yarn one was the one that shocked us with having a semi-body joke. I'll tell you after the podcast because I I love the joke. It's a great joke.
4: (laughs) Excellent. I can't wait to hear it. Another thing that might have some body jokes in it, though we don't know yet, what is the uh, Around the World in 80 Days miniseries we're about to get, uh, which I don't recall having learned about this in the past. What about you, Jonathan?
3: Nope. Didn't know about So first of all, Around the World in 80 Days is a Jules Verne story that's been adapted numerous times.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, you know, having, having everyone from Jackie Chan to Jackie Chan in it. And uh, <laughs> it's um, a, ser- a story about a very educated but somewhat childish man, Phileas Fogg, who makes a bet with a bunch of snooty Uh, British aristocrats that he can circumnavigate the globe in 80 days. And if uh, if he loses, he has to pay up uh, some outlandish. I think it's like 20,000 pounds or something, some crazy amount of money. Um, And like I said, there's been a lot of adaptations, but this one's got uh, uh, a great actor in it. Um, Who? Who?
4: Who? Uh, Oh, nice joke. It's David Tennant, (laughs) which uh, Slash Film, the Slash Film article that we'll link on our website, Large Neutron Collider, about this. It's like, yeah, he traveled the stars as Doctor Who, but he can barely make it around the world in 80 days. Um, paraphrasing a little bit, but it is pretty funny. Um, the trailer looks cute. I had, I was talking about this with my folks the other day, and one of them asked me, how many times are they going to remake this movie? And I said, they've got to do it once for every generation. If you want this story to like continue on, if you want the classics to continue on, and you try to show like uh, whatever generation is after millennials, an old version of Around the World in 80 Days, likely it's not going to grasp their attention. So maybe it's just the every 10 years bid to keep this story alive.
3: Uh, first of all, I agree with you. Second of all, Gen Z, I love you, even if Ariel doesn't. Uh, I do love you. I just don't. (laughs) (laughs) Third of all, no, but I I think you're making an excellent point there, Ariel, because I had a very similar discussion about something else. We'll talk about much later in this episode, a a different remake where, you know, I I know that there's a sort of knee jerk reaction among people to say, why are they remaking that? Isn't the version that we already have perfectly, you know, fine already. And in some cases I can fall into that trap, but I try to remind Mm -hmm. myself, like you were saying, this is a way to make a story appealing and relevant to a different generation. People who don't necessarily have a connection to the actors who were in a previous version, or maybe the previous version looks dated. Maybe it looks, you know, a little clunky to their eyes and that they wouldn't engage with it otherwise. And in that sense, it's kind of like theater, right? Like, Mm-hmm. Every production you see of any show is going to be different in some ways to the, all the other productions. So yeah. I'm Although okay with Cinderella.
4: It. I don't like what they've done to this story.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I'm okay. I'm okay with the idea. Mostly. I mean, there are cases where I start questioning things like, you know, mm-hmm. the, the remake of psycho that was a shot for shot remake. I thought, well, what's, I don't even understand the point of that, but, um, but others I'm like, no, I, I can, I'm this, this isn't for me. First of all, I have to start with this is not for me, and that's okay. <laughs> and if it works on a different level for other audiences, that's great.
4: Yeah. I tend to be more forgiving about it with like classic literature that this is done with than maybe just a really good movie that started off as a movie. I don't know why. And maybe it's just, you know, that that Goonies effect of what I watched as a kid and holds the perfect place in my heart for me versus anybody else. But yeah, yeah like c- if you do it with Shakespeare, I'll watch a bazillion Shakespeare revisions.
3: I, I can definitely see that. I, it's just, I sit there and I think about, okay, how many movies from the 1950s and 1960s did I seek out to watch? Because I knew that people older than, than my generation liked them. Mm-hmm. And the list is pretty small. And Mm -hmm. and I sit there and think, well, if they remade that with a cast that was contemporary to me and I I knew the actors and I knew like the director or whatever, then I might be more inclined to see it, even though it's, you know, sacrilege because they're remaking a classic film. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I feel the same way. Like if if I were to hear, oh, uh, Abrams is he got the go ahead to do a remake of E.T., I would probably be like pitching a fit outside right now.
4: Yeah. Yeah. And and the other thing is, you know, some some classic movies and and probably, you know, I haven't read around the world in 80 days and forever. So probably even that story, you know, has some things that are problematic nowadays. If you change it too much, then you should just make it its own new thing. Um, Yeah. But uh, so, you know, it's it is a. (laughs) A place where people can be very opinionated and uh, it's it's a very tricky tricky thing to do. Right.
3: Yeah. It's a tightrope, right? Like if you go too yeah. close to the source material, then you're boring. If you go too far away, then people are saying, why did you even bother calling it this? And, or, yeah. you know, if you're going too close to the source material, and as you say, if the source material happens to contain stuff that just does not work in a modern setting, like in a, with a modern audience, like it is not going to play well. It's going to, it's gonna be. Seen for what it was, which is probably a bad take. It was always a bad take. It's just now we recognize it as a bad take. Mm-hmm. You know, you want to you don't want to inflict that on your audience necessarily. No. So, yeah, it's tricky.
4: Yeah. But you know who is timeless, Jonathan?
3: Uh, if you if you I think I do know, but I want to hear you say it.
4: <laughs> Venom. OK, yeah, that, I know that heartwarming uh, antihero from Marvel.
3: Yeah, we we're we not going to spend too much time on this. I just wanted to, you know, Ariel made the lineup, as she always does, because she's amazing. And one mm-hmm. of the things she put in was that there was the, the uh, Let There Be Carnage TV spot for the new Venom movie, as well as some posters. And the thing that I thought was interesting wasn't really the TV spot. That actually didn't do much for me. To be fair, I am mm-hmm. I am not the person for Venom like that's not that's not my bag, but the thing I was talking about with Ariel before we started recording is that I find the marketing for this movie to be absolutely perplexing because the trailers we saw early on seem to really emphasize the humorous relationship between Eddie and Venom, right? Like there's this Mm -hmm. constant struggle between the two. And then this TV spot makes it look more like a classic kind of horror movie. And so it starts to raise the question of what kind of movie is this really? Is it, is it primarily a horror movie with some elements of humor? Is it primarily kind of a buddy cop film with some elements of horror? It's hard to say.
4: It is. The first one I felt rode, rode the line pretty well because it was scary, but it was also funny. But, you know, Carnage is, as all the trailers will lead you to believe, a bigger, badder symbiote. So, um. I'm going to watch it.
3: I'll let you know, Jonathan. That's good. (laughs) Yeah. Godspeed. I uh, yeah. I mean, for me, it's again, it's just coming down to the marketing thing. Like I look at the marketing and I think about other movies that were marketed in different ways, like the original Suicide Squad movie had very different marketing attached Mm -hmm. to it throughout before its release. And that movie turned into a total mess. So I always get a little like antsy when I see a film where I feel like the people behind the campaign didn't actually know how to market the film. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's what it comes across as to me.
4: Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's probably why I didn't watch the first one for so long, but I did enjoy
3: it. Personally. No, that's good. That's good.
4: We have one last story that we're going to touch on real quick uh, before the break. And that is that we're getting a new digital Pokemon card game. Woohoo! Just to lighten the mood a little bit.
3: Yeah. It's like a uh, celebrating. It's a, uh... 25th anniversary this Pokemon. How,
4: how is it 25 years old?
3: I mean, like, it's still I Ariel, I'm still of an age where I still call it Pokemans. Okay? Like, I don't know your Charizards from your Pikachu's or your Squirtles or whatever the heck they are. So <laughs> so to me it's all <laughs> to me it's all, all all Greek. But yeah, there's there had been a digital card game version of Pokemon where you collect Pokemon and you battle people, but Mm -hmm. it was really limited uh, and it was really clunky. And so now there's a new free to play Pokemon digital card game that's available on a lot more platforms. So that's great.
4: Yeah. The other nice thing about it is they have, there'll probably be some microtransactions, but they haven't really talked about it. So it seems like to play this game, uh, most of it, will be free and you'll be able to port over your cards that you have in real life and from the old game. So they're they're really trying to make this accessible, which I think is great for Pokemon because it's, it's something that I've seen live through many generations of children at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, albeit you're fighting uh, animals until they make each other pass out, but it, compared to a lot of entertainment nowadays, it's pretty wholesome, so... <laughs>
3: Yes. And as they say, you have no choice but to collect every single one of them. Pretty sure that's Mm -hmm. how it goes.
4: That's that's what I do with
3: Pringles. (laughs) All right. Well, on that note, we're going to go into a quick break. But when we come back, we're going to ask the question. What if? What if?
0: This is it. Your moment.
4: all right we're back i've recomposed myself uh
3: <laughs> it was pretty impressive to watch her do that on camera like actually you know reconnect yeah. all of her pieces so that she was a whole ariel once again
4: yeah I'm just actually a jigsaw puzzle of complexity just like all of the what if stories we've been getting from marvel
3: yeah, so uh, Ariel and I have both caught up on the What If series that's uh, streaming on Disney Plus right now. If you are not familiar with What If, it is a line of special comics that came out from Marvel that just asked the question, what if and then you have a different scenario gave uh, Marvel artists and, and writers a chance to play around with characters that you normally you wouldn't have that much leeway because these are money-making figures, so you can't do anything too crazy with them. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. Like, you can kill them off, but you got to bring them back. So the What If series didn't have those limitations, so they could ask questions like, you know, uh, what if Aunt May got bit by the radioactive spider instead of Peter Parker? Mm -hmm. Like, those are the kind of questions. So some of them could be very, very silly, and some of them could be very not silly, and we're, we're kind of seeing that with the the streaming series too, which is taking the Marvel uh, universe as it exists from the MCU. So it's the MCU versions of these characters often voiced, not, not always, but often voiced by the actors who played those characters on screen Mm -hmm. and putting them into different scenarios. So these are not retellings of the classic. What if comic books, they are new. What if scenarios using the MCU version of comic book characters
4: and i was so hopeful when this series first came out because I, the first two episodes left me feeling pretty good um
3: yeah 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 i can see that yeah yeah i was like I,
4: after endgame which was so you know largely sad
3: um, yeah but one division nice. had a hat oh falcon, falcon
4: and,
3: the and winter, winter soldier, soldier. Mm. that was okay that was okay. He mm-hmm. was he was in a better spot at the end than he was at the beginning. Yeah. So <laughs> um,
4: Well, he's Captain America, so definitely. Uh and, and I guess Loki had a um, inconclusive yeah, Loki, ending?
3: Loki was like a Loki was like a a lateral move. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cuz he was essentially yeah. in the same like W- weird situation at the end as he had been in the mm-hmm. beginning it's a spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't seen Loki but, uh, and, and we're going to try not to spoil any of the what if episodes in particular, but as you say, mm-hmm. like I think we're on what episode like episode six was the one that just played, I think. So um, mm-hmm. five, uh, it was I think. five. Okay. So more than half of them have had endings that were perhaps more of the bummer end of the spectrum. Yeah. Um, and I had, I had even warned my wife when we first started watching it. I told her, I said, now listen, I've read the what if comics, things do not always end so well in what if like often, often the the question is what if, and it seems kind of lighthearted or interesting or, uh, maybe just silly or whatever, but it frequently ends poorly uh, kind of like a Twilight Zone episode or a horror movie where your characters end up in a situation at the end that is not good. That is frequently the way what if plays out. And um, the theory I gave Ariel is that it sends the message that the actual Marvel timeline is the superior Marvel timeline. And any deviation from that ends in sadness.
4: But But here's the thing that I think is, if that's the case, very poor is that, okay, then I don't want to watch this next, uh, (laughs) this next phase because it's all going to be sadness. Um, And I, I, I want the multiverse to be full of wacky, zany, fun adventures.
3: Well, Loki, it was full of some wacky, zany, fun stuff in addition to some pretty grim stuff. So I suspect like the Marvel films have always had at least some element of humor, and self-awareness to them. I don't think that's going to go away. Um, I think that the multiverse will give them the chance to explore some stuff that might be a little experimental is probably going too far because this is still Disney and Marvel. I don't think they're going to push the envelope too hard, but they might be able to do some stuff that is a departure from their typical MCU approach. Mm -hmm.
4: Yeah, I I can see that. And and to be fair, you know, I I watched Shang Chi and that was an absolute delight. Um but uh, yeah, I don't I don't know. I was and I get that it's a cartoon so you want to make sure that adults know that it's for them. But I I was hoping that more of the episodes would have a bit more levity to them. That being said, the zombie episode, which I don't think is a spoiler because there are flipping Funko Pops out about <laughs> <laughs> the zombie episode. Well, and
3: and the zombie and the zombie stuff in Marvel has been, and I apologize, my dog is wanting to join in on the conversation here. But the zombie stuff with Marvel has been, uh, you know, it, it's been covered quite a bit in the comics, right? There are entire graphic novels mm-hmm. that are about that sort of alternate reality.
4: Yeah, well, that's what I was going to say is I feel like this. Now, mind you, I've mainly had the Marvel zombies explained to me. But between that and watching the What If episode with zombies, I feel like there was more levity and and a bit of more of a story that I could get behind in the What If version than the Marvel Zombies series itself.
3: Yeah, no. Yeah, it was it was not as I mean, well, it was not as drawn out as the Marvel Zombies series, which really takes its time in absolutely destroying all the characters you know and love. Um, (laughs) Yeah, uh, like uh, I would love it if there were at least one or two more lighthearted. What ifs, um, <clears throat> something that would be a little more, uh, uplifting or jovial would be great uh, because the dark stuff does get a little wearing after a while. Um, if I want that, I'll watch DC content.
4: Which we know how much you love DC.
3: Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, that was me throwing shade at DC. Um, there is one that I would love. I mean, it won't happen because they haven't introduced the fantastic four yet in the MCU, but there, Mm. there was one I remember where um, it was. What if Dr. Doom was a good guy? (laughs) And I want to say he was even in gold armor in that. What if comic, it's hard for me to remember. This was like one that might've dated from the eighties. And, um, uh, but I would love to have seen like something along those lines. It actually would be fun to see a what if and they pick some villain and they make that villain a good guy. We kind of got a little bit of that in the Guardians of the Galaxy one, but I don't want to say too much about yeah. it.
4: A little bit, yeah. Um, I would watch Doctor Doom, although if they introduced Fantastic Four in What If, then
3: No, that'd be ridiculous. They're never gonna do that. that like everyone ridiculous. was expecting that to happen in Wandavision. The two things everyone was sure were gonna happen in Wandavision is that Reed Richards was gonna be the the guy. That mm-hmm. when when they they're told that Monica Rambeau knows a guy that that, that guy was going to be Reed Richards and it wasn't. And the other thing, of course, was that, you know, Mephisto was behind it all. And a theory yeah. that I still love heard talked about, even, you know, no matter what Marvel property it is, I'm pretty sure that's Mephisto behind it all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
4: yeah. Um, I want to see an episode that is all Howard the Duck. Surprise, surprise.
3: Yeah. Well, um, I guess what well, they get, gives Seth green a lot of work, right? Cause he's the guy who does the voice for him.
4: Yeah. I mean, he was in the, the guardians of the galaxy episode, which mm-hmm. uh, that's a tiny spoiler if you haven't watched that one yet, but you know, he was also in the movies. So, um, I, I liked him. I would, I would love to watch something like that. I couldn't, I wouldn't be able to say it would be happy, but it would be probably be fun. Um, you know, I'm I'm surprised, honestly, that Hulu came out with the Hitmonkey series instead of just throwing that character into What If.
3: Yeah, yeah. Uh, we didn't talk about Hitmonkey, but that is mm-hmm. a weird, that's a weird concept for a show. It's a monkey... so adult
4: that they're like barely associating it with Marvel.
3: <laughs> yeah, because it's, yeah, it's, well, it's kind of like, how do you incorporate Deadpool into the MCU, right? Like, how do you? How do you manage to put those two things together where tonally they are so different and, um, you know, content wise, like Deadpool's content is just so edgy compared to the stuff you get out on Marvel. Uh, same thing with Hitmonkey. Like Hitmonkey is I mean, it's about a it's about a monkey that 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 goes on a revenge killing spree. <laughs>
4: Yeah. Now they could bring Deadpool into the what if, I mean, they've already showed that they can mash it up with Marvel somewhat. Well, the, the whole, uh, free free guy trailer with him and Korg was delightful and relatively family friendly. So.
3: It would be fun if they could, if they snuck in a Deadpool moment in what if before it's over, I think that would be incredible. I agree. I think that would be great. Like. The, the neat thing about the what if series, too, is that, again, it just gives the people the, the chance to to present scenarios that they could not possibly support in a longer form comic book. And mm-hmm. it what the, the spirit of what if I would say is the same spirit you would get when a bunch of geeks get around and they would just start spitballing stuff like the, the stuff mm-hmm. that you would see in, in the film Stand By Me, where you're like, who would win in a fight? Superman or Mighty Mouse?
4: Not completely um, dissimilar to what we do. Um, <laughs>
3: no, no. So, therefore, that's part of why I think it appeals so much to me. I am curious yeah. to see the rest of the series. I am hopeful we get a couple more lighthearted entries. I'm sure we'll get some more, you know, dark, grim stuff too.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, speaking of dark and grim, we should take another break and then get into our mashups.
3: You know, Ariel, people are strange when you're a stranger. Faces look ugly when you're alone.
4: (laughs) Are you quoting the Lost Boys?
3: I'm quoting the I'm quoting a song by The Doors that was featured in the Lost Boys. uh, People are strange, although I think it might have been the Echo and the Bunnymen version that was in Lost Boys. I would have to go and look at the soundtrack listing at this point. Yeah, uh, I, I alluded to this earlier in the episode. Lost Boys is a film that's getting a remake and uh, mm-hmm. with, you know, brand new actors and stuff. And so lost boys was one of those movies that uh, people on my generation kind of latch onto as being sort of a classic, you know, Halloween slash horror slash vampire movie um, with like, you know, Kiefer Sutherland in it and stuff. And that it's like yeah. this, this film where you've got the, this sort of biker punk gang of vampires in this little fictional beach town in California. And then you've got this family that's just moving into that town and uh, they get mixed up with the vampires and then it becomes kind of a vampire movie and it's um it's really entertaining.
4: Yeah. Well, they're remaking it and this time with Jaden Martell and Noah Jupe. Jaden Martell is from it. He played Bill and Noah Jupe is the boy from the quiet place um, who have both grown up over the pandemic but they still look so young to me. Yeah. Like I I haven't watched the lost boys a lot, although I have seen it, you know, I, I haven't watched it multiple times. Like many of the people I know and like Corey Haim looked young in that movie. Yeah. But Kiefer Sutherland and is it Leah Michelle? Was she the love interest?
3: Oh, I'd have to look. I am the worst when it comes to names. Uh, yeah, um, uh,
4: they look, they looked like adults to me, so it felt very off.
3: Yeah. Jamie Gertz was the 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 female lead. The, uh, she played Star. Yes. Yes. Uh, but yeah, like um, uh, the two Corries, Hayman and Feldman uh, were both. They both looked very young in it or pretty young in it. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, Kiefer Sutherland looked like an older teenager, maybe like someone who's maybe in the early 20s. Like that's kind of how the gang looked. And the the actors that have been picked for this remake look significantly younger. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. It doesn't need to be like a beat for beat remake of the original mm-hmm. for it to work.
4: Well, much like it, there are some disturbing um, coming into your puberty moments um, for it that if they include in, in this remake with the young boys might also be a little bit uncomfortable for like me to watch. I mean, I know Jaden Martell is 18, but he looks like he's 12. Um, yeah. So it's just that disconnect.
3: Well, that is going to be one of our. Um, uh, oh, and I was right. It was the Echo and the Bunnyman version. I had to look it up after I said it. <laughs> um, that's one of the two properties where mashing got. The other one is sort of, I guess, I'm, Ariel, tell me if I'm wrong here. But you picked it perhaps because of the Sparks documentary.
4: That is 100% correct. We're doing Toy Story. Yeah.
3: yeah. So, so I mean, if you don't know what Toy Story is, I don't know where you've been yeah. <laughs> for the last like two decades, three decades. Uh, Toy Story, obviously Pixar's first really big uh, hit uh, as a, mm-hmm. as a feature film is their first feature film. It features uh, toys that take on a life of their own whenever people are not paying attention. And, um, yeah, it's spawned a beloved franchise of films and now we're going to yes. ruin it.
4: Yes. Um, and I'm going to ruin it first.
3: So I bet you titled yours the same thing I titled mine.
4: The lost toys. There you go. <laughs> Woo-hoo! Well, let's see if they're the same story. I hope not, okay. but I really, I really, sometimes I just, I suggest things before I think about them and then I... <laughs> have a heck of a time actually writing it. So Woody was depressed with Andy and Molly grown up and he and the other toys donated to new homes. Woody found himself in the attic of a house in California with no one left to care about him. And he was lonely. Then one day, staring out the window of his now abandoned home, he saw a familiar face he never thought he would see again. babyface One of the lost toys created by Sid laying on the sidewalk. Then Woody saw a kid pick up the spider baby toy and return it to a house across the street. The kid went in, but never came back out, even after days. You see, Woody was a a toy, so he never needed to sleep. He could just stare out the window for days, and that's what he did. He was absolutely perplexed and decided to go investigate. When Woody got to the lost toy's home, he was surprised that Sid lived there, and was even more surprised that Sid was still a kid. And Sid was not the only kid in the house. In fact, there were only kids in the house and no parents. And that's when Woody heard a psst from under the couch, which wasn't actually a psst. It was the sound of legs reeling out her fishing line, hooking Woody and pulling him under the couch with her. She ushered him back to the room where the rest of the Lost Toys were being kept and explained what was happening. You see, Sid was a kid with little self-control and less self-worth, so one day when he met a bunch of 'er ne'er-do-wells during one of his rebellious outings, of course he joined their motorcycle gang, and then he had no qualms joining their ranks once he learned they were actually vampires. The Lost Toys had been waiting anxiously for the day when Sid would move out so they would Maybe finally find loving homes with non-judgmental, sweet, loving children. And once Sid disappeared with the vampire gang, they thought that day had come. They were packed up to be donated. And then it happened. A couple of kids ruined the vampire secret hotel hideout where Sid was staying. And the vamp gang needed a new place to stay. So, of course, Sid offered to let them move into his house. If, of course, they would help him get rid of his parents because his parents wouldn't agree to it. And that's just what happened. Sid infested his house with his vampire friends. This was horrible news for the lost toys. Once the vampires moved in, each one claimed one of Sid's mutant toys to help them lure victims back to the house for food or increasing their ranks. You see, vampires are less than human, and now that they were less than human, they could see that the toys were living creatures and the Lost Toys hated this. Their long-awaited day of freedom seemed like it was never gonna come. Worse, the kids who found and returned the Lost Toys didn't mind their garish appearance and would make loving homes for them, but once they returned the toys to Sid's house, they were eaten or turned into vampires themselves. The Lost Toys thought they would never experience love and forever be tools of the murdering monsters in their home. But when Woody got there, he gave them new hope. He had survived so many bad turns of fate and gotten out of so many situations, surely he could help. Thankfully, Woody had spent many days alone in his attic watching vampire movies through the window of his neighbor's house, which, you know, is a little creepy, but he's a toy, so who really cares? So he knew exactly how to free the lost toys and vanquish the vampires. They teamed up like the good old days, and through a montage of Home Alone antics mixed with a lot of fire, sharpened pencils, and windows, they attacked the vamps. It was a gruesome scene of vamp-on-toy action. They had just finished off the final original vampire and were about to start in on the newer recruits that they had lured when all the new recruits turned back into kids. Apparently they hadn't become full vampires yet. And each re-enlivened child was so grateful that they adopted their lost toy and gave it a loving home. And Woody found a new purpose, monster slaying. With all the toys in their new homes, he flopped off into the sunset, never to be heard of again.
3: (laughs) Okay. Well, I think we have slightly different uh mashups. So here's mine. Also called The Lost Toys. Buzz Lightyear has a problem. <laughs> oh no. He's just been brought home as a gift for a young boy named Sam Emerson as Sam's family is moving into Sam's grandfather's home in Santa Carla, California. Also in the home is Sam's older brother Michael, their mom Lucy, and their grandfather just plain old grandpa. (laughs) But that's not Buzz's problem. No, his problem has to do with other toys. Sam takes Buzz with him as he visits the local boardwalk, and Buzz sees there are these signs up about missing toys, which, yeah, that's weird, but this is Santa Carla. I mean, weird is kind of their thing. And Buzz spots this gorgeous toy around the corner, a shepherdess who seems to be in some sort of relationship with... A cowboy toy <laughs> at night when sam is asleep and buzz can move around buzz does some exploring including a local comic book store there a pair of squeaky frog toys named edgar and alan the frog brothers warn buzz that santa carla is home to a force of evil but then they also spend all their time in the horror comics section of the comic book store and it probably just rubbed off Buzz, on his way home, spots the Shepherdess again and approaches. She introduces herself as Bo Peep and invites him to follow her to a gathering. That gathering is a group of toys on the beach, around a little fake bonfire, you know, one of those that has lights and it's got fabric, flames, and a little fan to blow the fabric flames around. Anyway, the toys are all hard cases, and the leader of the group, known as Woody, is the hardest of them all. Like, he's hard plastic. Anyway. Woody offers Buzz some quote-unquote special batteries. Bo Peep warns Buzz not to take them, but Buzz, wanting to be accepted, does so anyway and inserts them into his battery pack. Next thing, we see Buzz quote-unquote waking up back at the Emerson home. He seems to have no memory of how he got back there, but his voice module keeps going off, and it's saying weird stuff like, I'm Buzz Lightyear, blah, blah, and (laughs) watch me turn into a bat. Which, it totally did not do that before. (laughs) Sam is a bit concerned over his toy. He thinks it might be broken. Buzz, once alone, tries to remove the special batteries from his battery pack, but they are corroded into place and he can't budge them. That night, he seeks out the Frog Brothers, who immediately recognize that Buzz has been corrupted with batteries that they say run on vampire power. Buzz says, Yeah, that's not what vampire power means but it seems to have little effect on the Frog Brothers. At first, they consider eradicating Buzz, but he convinces them to help him find a way to reverse the corruption. To do that, say the Frog Brothers, they need to take out the lead vampire power toy, Woody. So, Buzz leads the Frog Brothers to the Toy Gang's hideout, the backyard of a particularly twisted kid named Sid, but he's actually not Important to our story, so I'm just throwing that in for flavor. As they sneak around, they encounter Potato Head and they stake him. Ah! Steak and potatoes don't mix, Potato Head says as the vampiric life sleeps out of him. But But they do though, says Edgar Frog. They do mix, like like that's a thing. That's that's a thing that exists, steak and potatoes. The group retreats back to Sam Emerson's home, shaken by the experience. A bit later, they hear noise and realize that the house is under assault. The toys under Woody's direction are attacking, and so Buzz and the frogs go on this wild vampire power toy slaughter. They use stuff like pushing electric toys into bathtubs filled with water so that they short out, or they knock more delicate toys down the stairs to break into pieces, Or they might knock one particularly flammable toy into a fireplace that's on for some reason, even though this is California and it never gets cold enough for there to be a fire. Anyway, it comes down to a showdown between Buzz and Woody. The two have this knockdown, drag-out fight, and it looks like Woody is going to get the upper hand when Buzz, in desperation, manages to get Woody's pull string hooked on a coat hook on the the, uh, door. And Woody, unable to advance because he's tethered to the door, finds himself face-to-face, with Buzz holding a toothpick. And Buzz says, Write a good catchphrase here! Which is clearly a note for me, but I didn't I didn't <laughs> do that in time for the movie to be made. And he plunges the toothpick into Woody's chest. Woody's voice box scrambles a bit and you hear, There's a snake in my One last time before he drops, lifeless. But, despite taking out Woody, Buzz's batteries are still corroded into place, Suddenly, the door opens, and there's a toy Tyrannosaurus Rex there, the true leader of the vampiric power toys. The Frog Brothers yell, It's the head vampire, that one! Just as, the, as Rex knocks Buzz-prone, standing over him, his jaws wide, and then suddenly from behind him, one of those, like, go-kart-size military jeeps, you know, like the kind that's made for kids, it just comes barreling through the door, running over the T-Rex, and as the life ebbs from Rex's eyes, Buzz hears this clattering sound, and it's the batteries. They've fallen out of his battery pack. He looks up, and he sees that Grandpa was driving the Jeep. And so Buzz immediately falls slack to the ground, but it looks like Grandpa might already know what's up. And he quietly picks up Buzz, and he carries him back up to Sam's room, tucks Buzz into bed, and then says, One thing about living in Santa Carla I never could stomach. All the damn vampire toys. Credits.
4: (gasps) I never knew how well like how seamlessly those two properties would mash <laughs> up, Jonathan. That it's disturbing. It's I mean, disturbing I literally just
3: done. took the plot of Lost Boys and replaced characters. You
4: did. <laughs> did you did you pick Rex because it was the closest to Max that had vampire uh, from the Lost Boys? I
3: didn't. I picked Rex. I picked Rex because I was trying to think of who would be an unexpected toy from the toy story universe to actually be in charge of everything. And Rex is the one I would think would be uh, Rex, actually slinky dog is probably the least likely, but Mm -hmm. Rex would be like right behind slinky dog. Um, you know, I just was trying to think of one that would be the least likely to be the head of the vampires. Uh, I also was very pleased with my frog brothers because frog is the last name of the two brothers in lost boys who are obsessed with vampires and become vampire hunters uh, as the movie progresses.
4: Yes. If this if this were a championship, I would give you the belt.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's all about working in the references. Uh, This was a this was a fun one. I honestly, as I started off, I wasn't sure I was going to be able to do it, which is frequently the way I feel when I start (laughs) these things. But, um, you know, once I got into a groove, I felt like it went pretty well. But that's just my version, and that was Ariel's version. If you have a version of how you would mash up Lost Boys and Toy Story, and maybe you have Lost Boys Story, who knows, which sounds like it would be a very sad movie, you can yes. send it to us. And one way you can send it to us is via email. If it's long, email's the way to go. And our email address is lnc at iheartmedia.com.
4: Yes. If you want to reach out to us uh, short form, you can do so on the social media. It is LNC underscore podcast at Twitter and at Facebook and Instagram. It's large neutron collider. You know, let us know topics you want to talk about or uh, viewpoints you have that differ from ours or ideas for other mashups. We would absolutely love to hear from you.
3: Yep. And as always, of course, if you enjoyed the show, make sure you you know show your love, send, you know, write a review, recommend it to a friend. Uh, if if you don't like the show, recommend it to enemies. We don't mind. Um, I mean, it'll hurt yeah. our feelings. Just don't tell us about it and everyone will mm-hmm. be OK.
4: Yeah, yeah, that's that's pretty good. Well, uh, that's it. Until next time, I have been Ariel Blah Blah Caston,
3: And I have been Jonathan. I'm just going to get spookier from here on out. Strictly.
4: The Large Nerdron Collider is a production of iHeartRadio and was created by Ariel Caston. Jonathan Strickland is the executive producer. This show is produced, edited, and published by Tari Harrison. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
5: Come